Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast. For more information, visit centralbaptistchurch.ca. Good morning. It's nice to be back at Central this morning. And uh, I will say to you very sincerely that I appreciated my time with you a number of years ago, both as a congregation and as the staff. And I know that there have been some staff changes. It's nice to meet some of the new staff and preparing to come today. And as Phil said, nice to, to reconnect with you. It really has been. For many years, Harry and I have taken our children and assorted grandchildren up to Camp Homewood on Quadra Island. I've been the speaker there many, many times, and, and uh, we've also taken our kids up. And over those years, we got to know Alf and Mark Bain, who started Camp Homewood about 1944. And Mark died some years ago, went to be with the Lord. And a couple of years ago, we received word that Alf also, who was just over 100, had gone to be with the Lord and passed away. And he had left instructions that if I was available, could I come and speak at his memorial service up at the camp? And so we were delighted to do that. I went up and spoke about the legacy of his life, the legacy of his mission, and his commitment to the camp. And afterwards, someone came up to me and said, it was nice to have someone as old as you speak today. I didn't quite know how to answer that, so I didn't. And he kept on talking. And he said, how long do you think you'll be able to speak before you have to quit? <laughs> I hadn't answered that. And Harriet, my wife, stepped forward into the conversation. And she said, when it's time for Tom to quit, I'll tell him. <laughs> and so... I'm supposed to be here this Sunday and next Sunday. We will see about next Sunday. <laughs> Let me see what you remember of my ministry from three or four years ago, whatever it was. Where was I born? Okay, you got the country right. Now let's narrow it down. What, what city was I? Sorry? Edinburgh. You can leave if you want to. <laughs> I was born and raised in Glasgow. If you went to Glasgow today, I may have told you this the last time, if you went to Glasgow today and you bought a teacup or a spoon or one of those souvenir kind of things, on it you would find three words. The words are let Glasgow flourish. That's what it says. But if you did some digging into the history of the city of Glasgow, you would find that the real motto of Glasgow is let Glasgow flourish by the preaching of the word and the praising of his name. Now that's different. Do you know that was only used one time in the last century? It's when Billy Graham came to Kelvin Hall in Glasgow in the 1950s to lead a crusade. I know that because I was there. In 1963, I was enrolled as a student in the Baptist Seminary, which is located in Glasgow. And at the same time, as I was also starting my first year at the University of Glasgow, where I was working on an MA in philosophy and English literature prior to studying theology. 1963, that same year, a little book was published by a man called Harry Blamires, 
who was a student of C.S. Lewis. The book was called The Christian Mind. And I will tell you very honestly that that book changed my life. Started me on a quest. I have a whole pile of books now that follow this whole theme of the Christian mind. And so from this Sunday and next, I'd like to unpack some of the, the ideas that are involved for us as Christians in this subject of critical thinking. Because I really believe that it is crucial to our lives. Let's start with a definition from Blay Myers. He says, the Christian mind is a mind trained, informed, equipped to handle data of secular controversy within a framework of reference which is constructed of Christian presuppositions. Now understand, this is nothing about being smart. It's nothing about having degrees or graduated from this or that. It's about thinking. And his next sentence is really a takeaway for you this morning. The Christian mind is the prerequisite of Christian thinking. And Christian thinking is the prerequisite of Christian action. You've got to get that. Christian thinking is the prerequisite of Christian action. So he says to us again, the Christian mind sees all of human life and history as held in the hands of God. He sees the whole of the universe sustained by his love and by his power. And it is critical for us as Christians that we understand the difference between, on the one hand, thinking secularly, that means we keep our lives and our thinking rooted in this world, and thinking Christianly, which is to keep all things related directly and indirectly to our redeemed eternal destiny. Thinking is the hardest work we will ever do. And it is the most important. But in his opening sentence, my book is kind of falling apart these days. I have to bind it together. It's really the opening sentence in Blamar's little book that stops you in your tracks. Because he says, opening sentence, there is no longer a Christian mind. He was writing that in 1963. We need to stop and think about that. In the book of Chronicles, there's a group of people who are called the sons of Issachar. And it tells us only one thing about them. It says, the sons of Issachar understood the times in which they lived. So I'm going to ask you this morning. Do we understand the times in which we are living? In Victoria today. Because whether we like it or not, we need to acknowledge that Christendom is dead. Now understand what I say. I did not say Christianity is dead. But Christendom is dead. That means the age and the time in which the church has had, frankly, special status and cultural privilege is over. In the past 50 years or so, the church has lost its role as a cornerstone of society, which started way back about 300 AD with the Emperor Constantine. I think today has been replaced by the mall. The church has been replaced by the mall. If we went down to Mayfair Mall or Uptown or somewhere, we'd find all kinds of people shopping and visiting and having coffee 
who have had no interest in the church at all. Harry, I was reading an article to me this, about last week. And the point of the article was that clergy should lose their, tinks, their tax-exempt status on such things as houses. There's also a movement, comes regularly, to end the tax-exempt status on church buildings. And each Christmas season, there are objections to Christmas carols in our public settings here in Victoria. And what is behind all of these things is what we call the death of Christendom. I'd like to call it for you this morning a seduction. It's been like a deadly fog slowly creeping over our culture, silently enveloping us. It comes from a number of movements which started often as ideas, often debated in universities and the philosophy department, and then they have moved into the mainstream of life. Here's some headings that will help you perhaps understand the spiritual and cultural climate in which we live. There's one, we'll call it pragmatism. Pragmatism simply means truth is whatever works. And in pragmatism, truth becomes inevitably relative. It means that there's no absolute truth about this or about that. We just simply assign a positive value to whatever works. And whatever works is better and therefore must be right. It's a kind of a moral and ethical Darwinism. That's what it is. You hear people talk today about truth for you and truth for me. Just pick your own truth. That'll make you comfortable. The real conflict between Christianity and pragmatism is a conflict between, on the one hand, what is right and true, and on the other hand, what is expedient and simply works. The principal spokesman in the New Testament for pragmatism is a man called Caiaphas, who says in the Gospels, the Gospel of John, I think, he says, it is expedient, it is pragmatic, for one man to die for the good of the nation. In other words, we need somebody to die today to satisfy this crowd. The issue of right and wrong is not considered. Let's just do what the job demands. Forget about the ethics. That's pragmatism. Alongside that, we'll call it pluralism coming next. Under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. By the way, it's really called the Charter of Rights and Freedoms and Responsibilities. Canada defines itself as a pluralistic nation. It is a mosaic of cultures, a mosaic of religions, in which one should not be allowed to impose one set of beliefs over another. Truth is a kind of a smorgasbord, a kind of religious cafeteria. So no single truth overarches anything. Rather, there are many truths, some of them obviously conflicting with one another, and so they kind of jostle and bump against each other, and they try to manage to live together under the same roof. Yet within this pluralistic mosaic of our country, there are tendencies that run counter to the current of true pluralism. There's a strong urging, you see, towards a monolithic culture. There's a uniformity, a neutrality. So in pluralism, absolutes are a threat because they present convictions. Convictions are equated with prejudices. Prejudices are seen as absolutes. And facing this pressure, Christian distinctives are forced to conform 
fit into a kind of religious neutrality. This double-sided emphasis of diversity and uniformity means that the Christian truth has no longer a place of privilege in our culture, in our city. It has to find its feet in the rough and tumble of the marketplace of ideas. So the Christian gospel is just one of many voices. Its message is seen as part of this religious cafeteria that people may visit. Then there's modernism, a period of history running roughly 200 years from 1750 to 1950. And in modernism, science and knowledge became supreme. It gave birth to the spirit of humanism, which people could live without God, without the reality of the spiritual universe. Reality is whatever you could see, prove, touch, and examine it. And humanism has little or no place for the world of the spiritual and the supernatural. We were singing about that this morning. Humanism gave us what Oz Ganes called a striptease. It offers us everything and yet gives us nothing. Its drive for economic satisfaction, material happiness, does not satisfy the quest of the human heart. We've moved today into the spirit of what is called postmodernism. Simply means we're after modernism. And the good news in postmodernism is that we find a new interest in spirituality. Spirituality is not only permissible, it's popular. In fact, it's a big seller. You can make money off it. It sells books. It welcomes guests on Oprah. It makes bestsellers out of people like Deepak Chopra. It seems, though, that spiritually hungry people look for anything that is something new and fresh to say. There's a spiritual hunger in our land. That's good news. It is also bad news. With the demise of Christendom, the objective data that people used to have to determine to evaluate truth, that has changed. Truth has now decided on what's popular, what sells, what's pragmatic. It's a kind of a Gallup poll. That's why 1 John in his little letter, chapter 4, tells us to test the spirits and see whether they are from God. And we need to ask, what criteria will we use to test? In the demise of Christendom, the steady abandonment of the Christian faith as, for the, as the moorings of society has left people with empty and hungry spirits. That's why G.K. Chesterton says, when man, and please give him the right, he uses man, he really means people. When people stop believing in God, they no longer believe they, they no longer believe in nothing. They now believe in anything. I think also across our culture in North America, one of the, the forces we face is consumerism. We are a culture that defines success by what we have, what we can buy, and how we can have more than others. Contemporary culture seems plagued with the passion to possess. And so we define ourselves in terms of what we have and in what we do rather than being men and women made in the image of God. Come back to that in a moment. That's why we say to people when we meet them, tell me what you do. Because we don't know how to say, tell me who you are. And we need to take some responsibility for this in a couple of ways. 
Christians have often succumbed to a lazy attitude about our faith. Our knowledge of our faith is often fuzzy and less than it should be. And my plea to us this morning and next week is that we cannot afford to be intellectually lazy. So Oz Ganes, one of my favorite writers, says evangelicals need to repent of their refusal to develop the mind of Christ. Second problem, we often have to confess that orthodox doctrine and good biblical teaching in churches does not always lead Christians to living changed lives by the power of the Spirit. We have not always seen the marriage of truth on one hand and the transforming power of God on the other hand work together in us. So our challenge is not only to win souls, but it is to save minds. If we win the whole world, but lose the mind of the world, we will soon discover that we have not won the world at all. In fact, we may have lost the world. Remember that Jesus calls us to love God with all our heart, all our soul, and all of our mind and our strength. So to think like a Christian means we need to think Christianly across the whole spectrum of learning. That means things like economics and politics and history, philosophy and music and business and art. We need to learn to think Christian about all of these things. What else goes on in our culture? Well, let me give you one more. I'll call it sensualism. One area in which I really think we have been seduced in our time in North America. It lies in the twin areas of identity and sexuality. Genesis says to us, So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. You need to understand with me that our problem is that our anthropology, our understanding of our humanness, is really being shaped by Plato, who defines us as separate bodies and spirits rather than a seamless tapestry of the physical and the spiritual life woven together by the hand of God. That is Hebrew anthropology. And that's where we need to put our minds. In Imago Dei, in the image of God, we find our identity and understand who we are. But our culture has disconnected itself from that truth. And so we seem to be confused about who we are and the essential identity of maleness and femaleness. These characteristics are sometimes regarded as kind of interchangeable, as though we're bits of Lego. You can just change the parts. Next Sunday morning, we're going to unpack Romans 12 and 2. Do not conform to the pattern, the thinking of this world, but be transformed. And you remember the phrase? By the renewing of your mind. Next week, we're going to see how we can renew and rebuild our minds. Remember that thinking comes before living. So let me finish this morning in a few minutes by asking, how do we think Christianly about the times in which we live? Here's some ideas. They're what I often call broad brushstrokes. In other words, they leave a lot behind and room for much, much more discussion. In this age of pluralism, 
we will need to think wisely about how to present the gospel. Let's agree with our unapologetic stand this morning. We actually sung this on the cross of Christ. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. It is saying as we sung this morning that the cross cross is non-negotiable. I believe that churches that lose the centrality of the cross both in their message and their ministry will find themselves impotent. They'll end up with nothing to declare. As Christians living in a pluralistic society, we can and we must be clear voices for Christ. However, we must recognize that the Christian voice is not the only voice in society. In this cafeteria of truths that people are offered today, what will help them select the fact that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life? We are a number of competing voices in our city. And we will not be heard just because we sing louder, preach longer. We will need to find a new starting place a new starting point for the gospel. And personal authenticity, as we will see, flows from our spiritual and moral values, not from our conditions and circumstances. It means we'll be honest and fair with all people at all times and all situations. We must create and live in a climate of personal corporate authenticity. Otherwise, our message has no authenticity. The prelude to the gospel will also be found in serving our city, just as you do, as a downtown city church, in providing groceries, making food available in the market to our city, supporting the mustard seed, and so on. That's the prelude to the gospel. It's not the gospel, but it's the prelude to the gospel. Also, in an age of sensualism, we must think deeply about our moral lives. I have a growing sense that we will need to think and understand more deeply than ever before what it means to be a Christian as evidenced in our moral lives. Paul says to the church at Rome, let us behave decently, as in the daytime, not in carousing or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality or debauchery, not in dissension or jealousy, but rather, a lovely phrase, clothe yourselves Clothe yourselves with the Lord Jesus Christ and do not think about how to gratify the desires of the flesh. In one of his other books, um, Harry Blemeyer's in a couple of sentences in a paragraph, makes the connection between credit cards and premarital sex. I couldn't really understand that until I went on and read him a little more. The connection, he says, is we have developed a culture that does not know how to wait. So in credit cards, premarital sex, we don't know how to wait. No matter what the sensuous voices in our culture say, can I say to you this morning, we need to create the courage for our young singles to declare, waiting is worth it. Virginity is worth it. This is the one unique gift I bring to my lover 
on a wedding night. You know, in the Song of Songs, we, we find a picture of biblical sexuality that's healthy. And it is passion without pornography. And it is love without lust. You remember way back in the book of Genesis, the story of Joseph? It starts about chapter 37, I think, and on to the end of the book. Joseph is a guy with a real neat tailor and fancy clothes and all that stuff. And gets taken prisoner and ends up in, in Potiphar's house. And it's a warm afternoon in Egypt. No one else is home and everyone's out of the house. And then Potiphar's wife says to Joseph, he's a handsome, single, young guy, Joseph, come here. Let's go to bed. Recreational sex. No commitment. Let's just go to bed. And you remember Joseph says, no. And he flees. In our culture, by the way, there's a time to run from some situations. That's one of them. It's a time to run from temptation. And Joseph ends up out of that incident because he's charged with rape. He ends up with 13 years in prison out of saying no. But God put him in a place in prison where he needed him. We need to understand in our culture that casual sex is a contradiction in terms. It is a life-uniting act without life-uniting intent. The church needs to declare without any embarrassment the message that sexuality is a gift from God. It is not the result of the fall. It's a gift of God that came before the fall. And it will need to let people know clearly that sex is not something we do. It is who we are as we bring ourselves to know someone. That's the Hebrew and Greek word for sexual intercourse and marriage, to know someone in commitment. I'm aware that both Pastor Barton, Central Baptist here, you have addressed issues on homosexuality and gender roles. You've hosted a conference on gender sexuality with Sam Albury. May I refer you back to those things as a resource for developing the Christian mind in those kinds of areas. We will need to be a gracious church to find gracious, gentle ways of welcoming people in who are victims of our sexual revolution, who have suffered the bumps and the bruises of our culture. And let them know, as we were singing this morning again, grace meets all of us where we failed, in our sin and in our addictions. The ground is level at the foot of the cross. Christianity does not have a moral base. No one is better than anyone else in the grace of God. So when I want to live like a Christian, I have to think like a Christian. Last one this morning. In the age of individualism, we will have to think deeply about authority for loving God. Think about this last year and 18 months. In both Canada and the U.S. um, and with COVID-19, a number of churches have made a point of refusing to follow the government to close their services. One of the marks of our secular thinking is individualism. We demand the freedom to do our own thing. 
One of the marks of Christian thinking is the acceptance of authority. Now understand, there may be a few occasions when for the cause of the gospel, and only for that cause, we cannot accept authority as Christians, and the most powerful activity of the church in our culture will not be protests or marches for the proclamation of truth. Back to Romans again. Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which is God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, those who rebel against authority, rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do will bring judgment upon themselves. Remember, Paul is writing about a Roman authority over the Christians, and Roman authority was anything but Christian. Peter wrote exactly the same thing in his little letter to obey the governments. And he was speaking in the time of Nero. Nero was not a very nice man to Christians. He found that if you cover them with tar and put them on stakes and set them alight, they made nice fires for your, your parties at nighttime. Remember the line from the book of Judges? One line of time after time in the book of Judges. It means, and it says, and every person did that which was right in their own sight. Individualism. The point is that when Christians submit to the societal laws of law and order, realizing that the government does not have absolute power, only God is that, when Christians submit to the societal laws of our society, they give an opportunity for the glory of God and for the cause of God to be honored in the city. We are fast to complain about government. Isn't that right? still there we are fast to complain but we are not so good at encouraging them and thanking them in first timothy and in peter we are commanded commanded to pray for government let me ask you this morning how many mlas are there in bc Eighty-five, you're close. Eighty-seven. I looked it up in Google this week. Because <laughs> I didn't know. So let's get practical. What if we began to pray for them? To pray for their spouses and their families and what they do. And you might instantly say, well, that's not the person I voted for. It doesn't matter. And it doesn't matter what party they're in. Who cares? You need to remember what Jacques Ellul once said when he says, politics doesn't change anything. Only the kingdom of God changes things. So what if the Christians in this capital city began to do that? Took those 87 names, men and women, spouses and children, divided up their names and started to pray for them. Not just occasionally the church service, pray for our government, but day after day after day after day. What if we did that with the federal apartment in Ottawa and divided up the names amongst Christians and the churches all over the city and said, we will pray for them and we will pray for them every day. That is the start of Christian thinking, which leads to Christian action. We don't need committees. 
We don't need budgets or anything else to pray for the MLAs. In fact, we are commanded to do it. We're commanded to do it, folks, as part of thinking Christians. So thinking like a Christian is an expression of loving God. Every time we sing or pray, we want to be more like Jesus. Do you know that we are asking and we are praying and we are desiring to think like Jesus and so to act more like him? There's an old hymn that we really don't sing much anymore. Some of you will know the words. May the mind of Christ, my Savior, live in me from day to day. By his love and power controlling, controlling all that I do and say. Remember that old hymn? May the mind, the thinking of Christ, my Savior, live in me from day to day. So we're going to finish in a moment with a reading, which really was the start to all of this kind of thing. When Paul wrote to the church at Philippi, a church that he loved, a church with whom he had a great sense of fellowship and sharing and wonder, built within that letter to the Philippian church is a passage which is absolutely priceless. We'll read it in a moment. It really is the heart of Paul's life. I believe his personal worship life. The passage was probably written in Aramaic before it was written in Greek. And it's very probably that it was what's called an ancient hymn of the church. It's something which the church knew and chanted or sung. So when Paul, when Paul talks about it, instantly everyone knows exactly what it was saying and they could probably track along with him. Here's what he begins. He says, in everything you do, have the same mind as Christ Jesus. In other words, Paul is simply saying to us, think like Jesus. And in case you want to know what that's like, he goes on and says to us, who, being in the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God as something to be take, used to his own advantage. He didn't take advantage of that. But rather, he made himself nothing. He made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant. And being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And I have a sense that when Paul got to that point, he put down his pen, maybe he bowed his head. He thought about what he's just written, he became obedient to death, even death on a cross.
He waits for a few minutes of silence. And then he picks up his stylus, his pen again. And things just flood his heart and his soul. And he begins to finish. Therefore, he says, God exalted him to the highest place. Literally, he says, he hyper-exalted him. He super-exalted Jesus. And he gave him a name which is above every name. That the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. Of heaven and on earth and under the earth. That's you, that's me. Every knee will bow. And heaven and on earth and under the earth. And that every tongue will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. You got that? Say it with me. Every tongue will acknowledge that. Jesus Christ is Lord. Come on, Central, you can do better. And every tongue will acknowledge that. Jesus Christ is Lord. To the glory of God the Father. If you were encouraged by today's message, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and gatherings, visit us at centralbaptistchurch.ca. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Podcast.